Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning on this beautiful Colorado day. It is supposed to be gorgeous today, and what a great day yesterday. Uh, Yesterday evening was just beautiful, and today's going to be really good. Temperature might start dropping towards the end of the day today. We got some weather coming in, and during the course of the show today, we're going to talk to you about what's going on, what you can get out and do yet today, and then how this weather is going to affect things coming up, and what some of the changes might be and what might lie ahead. I mean, uh, are we going to get into an early ice fishing season, or will it be more of a normal November, and we'll see the temperatures change, and we'll have the boats on the water for another month? We're, we're going to talk about all those possibilities if you follow us on Facebook, you would know that Karen posted a trivia question today. And uh, we'll be doing that sometime during the show today, giving away a prize. Our next guest will be telling us what that prize is. And we're going to be joined by a couple special guests during the show, too. I mean, not only Ed Gorman's going to come on and give us the update on the pheasant population in Colorado, but we're going to... Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Jackie um, Bowcrazy is what her uh, her Facebook page is, I believe. And she's the extreme huntress from several years ago out of Colorado. And she is competing to be the ultimate world champion extreme huntress. And we have between now and January to vote for her and see if we can't make something happen And we just have a lot going on today, so let's get to the phones right now. And joining us is Austin Parr. Good morning, Austin. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day out there. You looked in your crystal ball, and uh, I'm looking out next week. It doesn't look so good. Oh, man, I've been looking at my my forecast for some of these guide trips next week, especially early this next week. I think we're going to need to postpone some of those coming in. But uh, in comparison to some of my notes from years past, man, we certainly have not seen uh, fronts like this in quite some time. Not this time of the year. I mean, what a a crazy year it's been. You know, if we dial back till spring, spring never went away till the end of June. It stayed cold. We never got a 90-degree day till the last week of June or the last couple days of June. So the everything was behind, not only the fish, but the game, uh, the upland game. Everything was late, and uh, the fishing was hard to predict. Then all of a sudden, we had two and a half months where it got extremely hot and dry. The water temperatures went back to normal suddenly above and then lasted into the fall longer than usual. Finally started seeing true fall weather and looking like we were getting kind of caught up on where we were for the year. And then, bam, a little bit of winter shows up. So it's been it's been quite a year. Yeah, it really has. And it really has uh, affected a lot of these bites and, and uh, different hunting opportunities, certainly, as we've moved into this fall here. And, and with some of the, these temperatures dropping, what I'm hoping for is once everything stabilizes after these fronts pass, maybe we can get into some consistent weather patterns and, and get some of these walleyes especially fired up. Now, it's been different. You know, we've seen some, some late turnover, and, and uh, the bite has gone from good to bad to back to good again. And I'm hoping we can get a good November in. I, I, you know, I'm still hopeful, and um, I'm going to 
I'm going to prepare for both. I'm going to start putting new line on my ice fishing gear because we might, especially in the mountains, we might have some early ice. By the way, Austin, you're going to be joining us in the second hour. You and I are going to talk some pheasant hunting and maybe a little bit about ice fishing then too. So let's talk right now about what's going on. If somebody has time to get out today, what are you seeing out there? Well, today I think would be a very good day to get out, particularly the second half of the day with some of these uh, pressures dropping. And when that pressure drops, particularly in this fall fall time frame, uh, I really feel like the, the walleye bite can, can turn on in a really big way. So Chadfield in particular has probably been fishing a little bit better than Cherry Creek. Cherry Creek has not really fired off into a typical fall pattern in particular, like the one we saw last year where we had all those big fish coming, but it just has not materialized yet this year. But Chatfield did turn over in the in the past week, but it has had, you know, five or six days to, to get back to a steady uh, level out there. And, and I'm feeling that these walleyes are going to be getting uh, a little bit uh, deeper as we move into some of this colder weather patterns. And we've got uh, a couple guys out on Cherry Creek right now, too. Uh, Mark Harrison and Kevin Gibbs, some of the, the guys that guide for me out there. And I have not heard anything from from them as of yet, but uh, I would probably still be thinking about Chatfield with some some jigging rafts as we get out there uh, and toward the tail end of the day. What are you What are you seeing for water temperatures on the Front Range right now? So I this this past front has changed it a little bit, but uh, it's still hovering right around 50 degrees in the early morning. I've seen down as low as 46 in some areas. So that is indicative of some of these fall bites with your spoons and jigging rafts getting going. You're right. It came late, but all of a sudden that water did cool off. We got some snow in it. The nights have been cool. And at that bite, if you can get the boat out, is gonna if it turns on the way we think it is, is going to stay good right up till freeze-up where you can't put boats on. And so we could be headed into a really good season now. Um, a couple of things that will affect that bite, and let's discuss it a little bit. One is this bite really materializes on lakes that have a lot of shad, or a lot of smelt because it tends to stress those bait fish. They ball up in the cold water a little more. They tend to maybe gather more, not maybe on structure, but related to structure maybe a little bit. And you and you find those fish concentrated in, in areas. Chatfield's going to be different this year because we haven't seen the bait. Why don't you talk about when those bait balls show up and then what's happening at Chatfield? Yeah, so as we mentioned, the, the Chadfield bite, as far as the shad are concerned, they, they have not really shown up much out there, and some of the shad that we've been seeing fish spit up have been as large as 5 inches. So uh, there's not many, but there are a few out there. So finding the concentrations of some of those smaller balls of bait definitely will help you find those fish. But in areas like Cherry Creek, part of the problem with the bite has been the fact that all these shad have had fairly consistent water temperatures, and they've literally been everywhere so whether you're in the main basin or you're up shallow those fish have uh, basically an unlimited supply of food to choose from so as we get cold however hopefully it's going to kill off some of these shad maybe make them suspend a little bit less and when you can get some of those fit those shad to push up on the edges of, of breaks and drop offs then you can present a thing like a jigging spoon or a blade bait or a jigging wrap that, that a lot of times relies upon bottom contact much better so you can you can cast it out and snap it back but finding those bait balls concentrated up against edges of structure is really what you're looking for. And then shifting over to Chatfield a little bit, these fish, in my opinion, are going to be more oriented on structure than they would on Cherry Creek, particularly for the fact that they're still going to be trying to, to find some forage. 
So if you can't find those those shad balls, I have been finding a lot of the fish actually on the base of structure, much more so than you would find this time of year. So rather than up top, down the bottom of the structure has been the, the much better area to focus on. Now, let's th- this phenomena should go on up and down the front range if th- uh, things hold true. You mentioned turnover, and that can affect it. Turnover does, the fish don't stop feeding, but it does kind of get their equilibrium off a little bit. What turnover, folks, is is when the water temperature, the density on top, gets heavy enough where it pushes down and mixes the lake. You see sediment come up. Uh, it makes the water dirty, and it, the only reason it really disorients is because now the entire lake for a few days is at the same temperature and the same oxygen level, and until it begins to stratify, the fish are so spread out, and they do feed a little less aggressively. You said Chatfield went through that. Have you heard about Pueblo, Boyd, any of those lakes? I've not heard about specific turnover. However, Pueblo has been fishing quite a bit slower than it typically does this time of year. There, there weren't quite as many bait fish as there are normally out there, but the fish from everything I've been hearing have been quite spread out. And then as far as Boyd is concerned, that bite has also been a little bit slower up there as well this year, which is somewhat uncharacteristic. Even during the, the Colorado Walleye Association tournament about a week and a half ago, there were some really big fish that got caught, but there weren't very many fish overall that got caught so i think that lake is also going to really rely upon a good heavy cold snap to try and concentrate some bait fish now we get this cold it concentrates the bait fish i think a lot of the ramps are open till probably the end of november is that about right end of november yeah so and even pueblo you can go all year yeah that's right get out there if this bite takes place you talked about jigging wraps and spoons those are the favorite tools of this fall fishing for us kind of tell people how you approach and how you fish and how you choose the one you're going to fish with. Absolutely. So first off, if I'm in a boat, I'm really trying to find either fish that I'm, I'm locating on structure or general bait balls that are in, a, in an area. And that's always the, the key. These fish are going to be concentrated in certain areas. And if you're fishing in areas where they aren't, obviously the, the fishing is not going to be very productive. But typically these techniques kind of started in a, in a vertical jigging aspect. And if the fish are in deep water, Certainly vertical jigging can be good, but definitely being mindful of some of the barrow trauma where you're going to be bringing those fish up quickly. If you're catching them in anything deeper than 30 feet, you really want to make sure that you're bringing fish up slowly. But if I'm finding fish a little bit shallower, I'm almost always casting these techniques, whether it's a jigging spoon, a jigging wrap, or a blade bait. And there's some form of a yo-yo style retrieve. So on a jigging wrap or a jigging spoon, I'm casting out and letting it sink all the way to the bottom. I'm snapping it up fairly aggressively with my rod tip fairly high. So sitting in the neighborhood of 10 to 1130 as far as if your rod tip is up on on the clock. And that snap is going to be followed by only about one turn of the reel handle and trying to maintain some degree of slack line on every single pull. If you're reeling all the way down to that, that bait, it's not going to be as productive. And then as far as blade baits are concerned, it's the same kind of general idea with a cast and the slack line pull but it's just going to be a much softer pull rather than that aggressive, sharp snap. Now, as far as color is concerned, it's just going to depend upon the, the specific fishery that I'm, I'm working with and even the specific day. If I'm on Chatfield right now with the lack of shad, perch colors have been much more productive than any of your shad-style colors. And then on places like Cherry Creek or other areas that have a lot of shad, such as Boyd or Pueblo, I'm focusing in either on a chrome but many times a white and or chartreuse can work really, really good this time of year. You're absolutely right. Now, 
A lot of people don't have spoons, blade baits, jigging wraps, Donny, Johnny darters. There's a number of those glide baits. The one from uh, Pure Fishing is the Johnny darter. A lot of people make those. Um, but we're going to change that for somebody because we're going to have a trivia question later on in the show. And you're you're supplying the trivia prize. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So we always talk about jigging wraps and blade baits and jigging spoons, but you know we're gonna we're gonna give away some of these right now uh, to, to somebody that that knows some trivia. So I have a selection of jigging wraps, Johnny darters, and Johnson Thin Fisher blade baits, all of which are some of my favorites, and even a couple of jigging spoons in there as well that work really good as the water gets colder. And it's about a fifty dollar value. I've got it down here at the shop for anybody that's going to answer that trivia prize later in the show. Yep, and we'll give that trivia question out. And if they, of course, follow me on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on uh, 104, uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook, they will uh, have a heads up answering it. Don't know if I'm going to ask for text yet or callers. I'm still thinking about it. Well, we got a couple minutes left. Um, I want to hit on the jigging spoons a little bit because you tend to really gravitate to the um, the blade baits and the the jigging wraps, the Johnny Darters, those have been kind of your favorites. Where I'm a little more old school, before we really started using those the way we are now, they were ice fishing baits, and they'd be, we oh, found yeah. out how productive they were. But a jigging spoon, I still believe that if you're vertically right over them, can still be the number one bait. And I love using a jigging spoon, but I think people have a little trouble getting their arms around that because it doesn't look like anything. It looks exactly. it looks like it looks like just a hunk of metal and they don't understand. If you own an aquarium, take a dime and just kind of flip it over. Don't spin it, but flip it and let it drop into the water. Watch as that flutters down if you have any freshwater fish in your aquarium and most saltwater too. Watch the reaction. It is incredible. It just triggers that reaction predatory bite. And I'm still jigging spoons kind of fell out of favor for a while. But I'm a big fan. I think that they should be part of your arsenal. I completely agree. And there's so many different varieties of them. But as someone who sells all these lures, there's all kinds of different uh, appeals as far as to fishermen. And there's there's uh, peg appeal where somebody really likes the look of a lure. And then there's lures that flat out ca- catch fish. And I kind of put jigging wraps and jigging spoons in that same category because they might not look the nicest. They look kind of funny sometimes, and people, like you mentioned, can't get their head wrapped around it. But particularly on that vertical jig, you incorporate a, a barrel swivel up above a, a leader on some super line, and you can drop that right down and give it some heavy snaps, and it catches all sorts of game fish. I mean, anything from your walleyes and your smallmouth all the way up to if you head down to John Martin or out to McConaughey, where you can catch wipers and white bass and catfish on them. And man, they do work really well. And you just, in my opinion, you're fishing, the, fishing them the same way you would vertically on a jigging wrap, where you're letting it crash down to bottom and you're letting it fall on a slack line. And that's the other big thing that people really have to, to maintain when you're fishing a jigging or a jigging spoon. Just as you mentioned, that it has to have a free fall to have the correct action. If you snap it up and kind of lower it down, in my opinion, it's not nearly as effective. So that's something to consider if anyone is going to be out there fishing jigging spoons over the next few weeks. Uh, Austin, I have to let you go, but you're going to join us in the second hour. Ed Gorman is coming up, and we're going to talk pheasants, which I know is near and dear to your heart. So you might want to pay attention. We have all that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports. Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. We're going right to the phones. Uh, Joining us is a gentleman who's 
He's probably taught me more about how weather affects our pheasant population than I could have ever imagined over the years. Ed Gorman, how long have we been talking about this? Uh, quite a number of years, Terry. Yeah, I'm we're not sure, but a, a large number of years. And I know, and we're both only like 25, so it's hard to believe. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've told me that weathers the pheasant population, as far as the huntable population in Colorado, is so weather dependent. And even though then there's so many variables, but I think this year being so crazy, I know you and I were both cautiously optimistic, but I don't know how anybody could have predicted until now what it was going to be like. Yeah, there's uh, so many variables to keep keep an eye on um, throughout the spring and summer period that it's just, uh, you know, as, the earlier you make a forecast, the bigger guess it is. Um, well, and but, this... uh, as, as we get closer to the season, uh, some of those variables start to go away and you kind of cross them off the list and then you get a real a really good sense of what's out there on the landscape as you get into October and particularly get some cold nights um, you get a real good idea of what's in the field so well and I know like I said you were cautiously optimistic that we're going to have at least a fair year of pheasant hunting but you and I talked during the week and I think you've kind of upgraded that forecast right I think I'm solidly in the good or maybe a little better than good category at this point um uh, my guys and our and our conservation officers have been out quite a bit the last few weeks um, with various duties um, and, and have, have given some real positive reports in terms of what they're seeing in the field, uh, which is which is good. Um, I, I think you know there, there's certainly in any year um, the forecast is a little spotty and it's it's site dependent, uh, meaning that you know one location can be really good and another location just a few miles away can be less good. That's just kind of the nature of the beast when it comes to uh, upland bird populations but across the board i'd say it's it's looking pretty good this year for sure i want to get into some of the particulars but before i do i posted that you were going to be on with me this morning and a lot of people questioned you know there's colorado doesn't have the reputation for pheasant hunting that a a, the dakotas or nebraska has yet over the last decade we've had some ups and downs but we've had some pretty spectacular hunting at times too. How would you rate our pheasant hunting over the last decade? You know, compared to some of the surrounding or some of the famous states. Well, it's difficult to compare um, with with places like North Dakota and South Dakota because they have uh, um, a, an exponential factor um, increase in how much habitat they have for birds. Um, we just don't have that here. Most of our fields are are really large and uh, don't really lend to huge populations of pheasants so it's kind of apples to oranges to those couple of states but you know to, to western nebraska or western kansas we're not dissimilar from them um, we just we're a little more prone to to dry out and that really has a huge impact on pheasants um, drought is the number one uh, factor affecting pheasant populations in colorado and it's kind of the same in western nebraska but being you know lying lying east of us they're going to get more precipitation on an average year, even in a drought year, than, than Colorado does. So that the, the effects are multiplied um, in terms of when they get precipitation, it helps their pheasants a little bit more. Well, I, I don't think a lot of, especially hunters who are just getting into it, realize how dependent every year's success is on that year's hatch. I mean, a huge percentage of the birds that are harvested every year are hatched that year. That's why it's so uh, uh, volatile, right? That, that's correct. I mean... You know, you should expect in a good in a good pheasant year, um, you should have tons of production that previous spring, and you should be harvesting 80 percent. Um, 
young of the year pheasants. Uh, when you when you kind of tilt the other way and you're you're harvesting lots of adult roosters, it tells you that you had pretty poor production the year the previous spring, and the population is probably not doing very well. Now we've had some banner years. I think back was it 2011 where the population just exploded. Yeah, yeah. And and then we've had some ups and downs since then. But I think we're looking at if you you know hunting is still hunting. You got to put in your time. But I actually think that if people put in their time this year, there's going to be a reasonable chance of good success, don't you? I think so. Um, from what we're seeing, anyway, that would be the case. Uh, certainly there's always, you know, you finding new spots and finding areas that maybe getting a little bit less hunting pressure. But, uh, you know, we've had good reports from lots and lots of areas um, the last couple of weeks. So well, well, you know, it, it seems to be fairly widespread. I mean, there are always areas where a hailstorm came in or, a rainstorm didn't quite fall right or right wrong timing on precipitation and those are down um, and, and you'll find those and the, the habitat won't look any different but you know all in all across the region i think it's definitely an increase from last year and in some areas maybe a significant increase well before we get into some of the maybe better regions i want to talk about a couple points one of those is uh as you travel around the country you may say oh there's great hunting here there's great hunting there but you'll also find that guides have bought up a lot of the access, and farmers are getting paid by them. They're not allowing people. It can be very expensive or not, not or non-existent to get access to some of these birds. In Colorado, because of our walk-in access program, and then because the farmers are working with us on that, we really probably provide some of the best access in the country. Yeah, we certainly provide a lot of uh, really convenient access to the hunter. Um, just a couple of statistics for the for the listeners this morning. Um, I just looked at the numbers this morning. We have 173,000 acres enrolled in the walk-in access program, which uh, the only thing we look for is uh, private land that has some likelihood of, of upland bird hunting success. Um, that 173,000 acres, which an acre is kind of a nebulous term, so let's kind of break it down into something that folks might understand a little better. Uh, 173,000 acres equals 270 square miles, or even more simpler, 1,100 pieces of land um, open to public hunting in what's largely a private land atmosphere in eastern Colorado. I believe the statistic is that eastern Colorado is 98% private land. So in, in a heavily private area, there's a lot of opportunity for folks to go walk around and, and, and hunt birds or hunt small game. Oh, there really is. And while we're on that topic, too, um, the harvest it's kind of late this year. We've had it's been a crazy winter, a crazy year. I mean, we've had late spring, we had really hot. Now we get some early cold. Um, you th in order to maintain the access we have, it's really important that people who are out hunting respect the property owners, isn't it? Yeah, that's huge. Um, every year, I, I talk to dozens of landowners that are in the walk-in access program, and when someone's upset, that's usually the the root of the problem. Is that uh, the landowner feels like his property is being being disrespected or not treated properly. Um, those types of things are, are absolutely critical. Um, picking up trash that others might have left, it goes a long way towards um, keeping a landowner happy with the program. Uh, certainly they're getting paid to put their land in, but that doesn't really convey over to the fact that they should have to accept um, less consideration from hunters. Well, and part of that, too, is the harvest is going to be late, which is going to affect the season, there's going to be a lot of standing corn probably, but that means there's also going to be interaction with people trying to harvest. 
Exactly. And and probably the number one um, complaint I get in a year like this where the harvest may be a little late is that uh, hunters are parked in the way or they're hunting in fields that a landowner is trying to harvest, uh, particularly some of the better corners that we have um, in the program are very popular with hunters and, and, that, and there's a conflict that arises when, when hunters are out there when a landowner is trying to combine corn. Um, it's kind of a dangerous scenario. Um, you know, I've had multiple landowners call and say, is there anything we can do? Um, how do we slow this down a little bit? So we adopted a regulation that ultimately closes those corners when the landowner is actively harvesting. So when the combine is driving in the field and picking corn, those corners are closed to hunting. Now that is only going to last as long as he's actively harvesting. So just a little bit of patience on hunter's part and a little bit of thinking before they hunt, it goes a long way towards keeping landowners happy and keeping their land in the program. Now, should the hunters be out scouting right now? Your guys are out checking numbers. They're looking around. Uh, earlier in the year, it's kind of hard to tell, but you can do a lot even just by driving the roads in the areas you want to hunt, can't you? Yes. Yes, you can. And and, and it doesn't even, you don't even have to get out into the field, really. You just have to kind of drive a, drive some roads and, and find, find concentrations of bird particularly early in the morning on a cold evening or a cold night followed by a nice sunny morning, birds are going to be out in the roads um, picking up gravel or dusting themselves or or just catching some sun, and you can really find out what's in the area. Um, that's kind of how um, our, my guys are seeing a whole bunch of birds out right now is getting out fairly early in the morning on a cool with a cool night followed, followed by a warm sunny dip morning. Um, you'll find lots of birds. And the last thing on the pheasants, and uh, and that's it. Are you willing to share maybe a few of the better areas? Let your few of your secrets out of the bag. Sure, sure. There's no. I don't think there's any secret to it in most years in Colorado. If you if you kind of think about what the historic harvest has been in those particular counties, it's Yuma is always number one. Um, it's a big county, lots of good pheasant habitat, lots of hunters, so it's going to be number one on the list. Um, the top five counties in Colorado are generally composed of Sedgwick, Phillips, Logan, Kit Carson, and Yuma, with Yuma occupying the number one spot. So those five counties are a great place to start. After that, you kind of look at the counties that are touching those counties. Um, Eastern Washington can be good. Um, and then you go on down to the southern part of the state. Uh, Baca County can presented a real unique opportunity for hunters to hunt pheasants, scaled quail, and bobwhite quail in a fairly small area out east of Springfield towards the Kansas border. Now, those are kind of the places that I start with um, every year and look at those. And then, you know, the other isolated areas around um, are kind of less popular with hunters, um, certainly portions of Washington County, um, western Kit Carson County. Places like that can uh, definitely be good hunting. They just they're not as well-known and definitely less hunters and probably not as much access. You may have to knock on a few doors in some of those areas. We're over time, and Jennifer is waiting impatient, I hope patiently, to tell us about some a great event that's uh, going on in another park area. But right now, Ed, I think that um, everything I'm hearing from you, everything I'm hearing from the field is uh, if you like the Hunt Upland game, it's a good year to get ready. Get out and start scouting right now. Thank you for joining us so much, Ed. You're welcome, Terry. Yep, always great information, Ed Gorman. We're a little bit over, but when we come back, we're going to talk about another animal in Colorado and how you can go viewing and have a family day and a great time right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. 
You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We are going to go right to the phones. And uh, joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is uh, Jennifer Stanley. Jennifer, thank you so much for being patient. Ed just had so much great information to share, and there's so many people interested. But you got a great topic, too, we want to get to. Good morning. Uh, wait, did I lose her? All right. I somehow lost Jennifer. I thought I brought her up, but I must have. I don't think I hit something wrong, but it's always possible. So let's, uh, Jennifer wants to talk to us about the Bighorn Sheep Festival, and I'm sure that's her calling us back. And uh, as soon as they make sure it's her, I will go right to the phone because this is such a fun thing. I assume that's her, right? Yeah. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. You wait so patiently, and then for some reason I decided to hang up on you. No problem. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, and thanks for coming on. I'm sorry you're a little late, but we're going to give plenty of time to this. But Ed has so much great information to share about our, our pheasants that he comes on a couple times a year to talk about it. And he's uh, he's such a, a, a resource that I wanted to make sure we covered that. But you got something kind of fun and important to cover, too. And you're going to talk about another animal that's important to Colorado, and that's the bighorn sheep. Before we even get there's a festival coming up, there's going to be activities, viewing. Before we even get to all that, Tell people how the bighorn sheep fit into the outdoor culture in Colorado. Sure. So the bighorn sheep, um, specifically the ram, is our state mammal. And this time of year, it's such a great time to um, have a festival, a, a watchable wildlife festival for them because they're at the peak of their rut. So the males, which are the rams, are currently competing uh, for females and they are known for their head bashing um, in that competition. So it's a great time to see them and celebrate our state mammal. No, it really is. It's so spectacular. You know, if I drive down a lot of the canyons, if I see a bunch of cars pulled over, it's almost always because there's bighorn sheep on the cliffs and on the edges. And just watching the way they can maneuver around there is so spectacular. It's just unbelievable. Um, but they're such a majestic animal. And then when they're what, like you said, those rams, and it just echoes down the canyon. Um, and you're going to have a festival where people can learn about them and actually see them there, right? Or hopefully see them. Yeah, hopefully they'll show. Um, on Saturday, November 9th, from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., we'll be in the city of Georgetown uh, with our annual Bighorn Sheep Festival. Um, and we'll have lots of activities going on, including uh, viewing the sheep. We'll have Colorado Parks and Wildlife volunteers set up at the Visitor Center with spotting scopes uh, to help folks see them on the hillside across I-70. And they have shown up every year. Um, and last year, they even got to see the males uh, clashing and bashing. It's really, it really sounds like a fun time. And I see you scheduled it out a couple of weeks knowing that you'd get past this bad weather and you'll have perfect weather, right? <laughs> I hope so. You know, Georgetown in November, um, anything can happen with the weather. Uh, but hopefully we'll get some sunshine and calm winds. But the weather doesn't affect the sheep much. They're used to it. They're going to be out there doing their thing, especially this time of the year. And it can be spectacular. Tell us more about some of the activities. I understand there's going to be a Facebook page photo contest. Uh, that is correct. So folks can go to uh, facebook.com forward slash Georgetown Bighorns and submit any kind of bighorn sheep pictures from around the state on the Facebook page. And winners will receive prizes from Parks and Wildlife um, and Georgetown, and they can submit photos until November 2nd. Uh, and winners are decided by a public vote through the Facebook page. 
No, it sounds great. And then there's a lot of activities, family-based and individual-based, that aren't all just bighorn sheep. Tell us about some of those. Sure. So some of the family activities we have planned are the bighorn hokey pokey. Uh, So we will have a dance in Strauss Park, and we'll learn all about uh, sheep behavior while we do that. We'll also have wildlife crafts and face painting at the library uh, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. So kids can come and uh, make bighorn sheep puppets and horns out of paper plates. And then new this year for kids, um, we are going to have a new mascot. His name is Wilder, and he's from Great Outdoors, Colorado. Um, And Wilder is kind of a combination between a Yeti and a mountain goat. uh, And he reminds all of us of that imaginative play outdoors that we all need to stay healthy and happy. So he'll be on the library park stage, and you can take a photo with him. No, you're absolutely right. It's just great to get the kids anything. You know what? Our, Our motto on this show is give them a tackle box, not an Xbox. But anything, <laughs> yes. anything that gets them off the couch and outdoors. And, you know, once you introduce youth to the outdoors, a lot of time it becomes part of their life. But you got to get them out there. In addition to that, you're going to, I understand you got a shooting archery and shooting also. Yeah, so every year we set up an archery range um, across the parking lot from the visitor center uh, where families, kids, uh, parents, anyone who would like to can try their hand at shooting a bow and arrow. And we'll have uh, volunteers there from 10 a.m. to noon and then 1 to 3 p.m. And then they'll be shooting at black targets and a 3D target as well. And then also you have uh, rifle shooting, I believe, or is that air rifles or 22s? Um, so we don't have that this year. It'll just be our archery range with the oh, okay. bow and arrows. All right. I know you've had that in the past, but there's a lot going on, too. And I believe the city of Georgetown kind of pitches in and takes part, don't they? Oh, they do. Absolutely. So this is a great um, partnership between Parks and Wildlife and the city of Georgetown. And another nice new piece this year is um, we have Bighorn Crossing signs that businesses around town will be posting in their windows and folks who are there for the festival if they see those bighorn crossing signs they can go in and the retailers will be giving discounts on their merchandise during the festival and i also understand there's some historic tours uh yes so that is another activity with the hotel uh, de paris and they will be doing tours from 10 to 4 and that's about $10 per adult for a ticket to get in and see the hotel. And that's one of the, you know, except for the vendors like that, everything else, the viewing, the educational things are all free, right? That is correct. So there's no general fee to um, be at the festival um, just to do the tours, or there will be some vendors set up in Strauss Park uh, selling some things during the festival. So if you'd like to take a souvenir home, you can. I also heard there might be s'mores at a campfire. Yes. So after our hokey pokey uh, with Wilder and our mascot, Albert, the bighorn sheep, you can warm up by a campfire for some gourmet s'mores. Now, it sounds like just a great, great family activity. I mean, what a place to go get outdoors. And Georgetown isn't that far up the hill. Um, you can be there quickly from the metro area. Is information about all this on a Facebook or a web page where people can go access it? Yes. So if you go to the Georgetown uh, Facebook page, you'll see all the information about the festival and again for that photo contest. All right. And again, the date is 11 to 9 or is it restricted to certain? I'm sure there's things going on all the time, but when are the main hours? Sure. So the main hours are 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. and all activities will be taking place during that time slot. It just sounds like a great time, especially as I said earlier, that you picked a day that we know is going to have incredible weather. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And it's a beautiful time to be in the Rocky Mountains this time of year. Well, and you know what? Even if it gets a little cold or wintry, everybody that lives here <laughs> should have some winter clothes. Put them on. And just seeing, if you've never seen the bighorn sheep or if you want to see them and learn about them, they're just incredible. I mean, what a majestic animal. And to see them uh, in their natural element and how do you run across a cliff that I couldn't even stand on and butt heads with another one and not fall? Yes, it's pretty spectacular um, what they can do up there. And hopefully we'll get to see them clashing this year as well. All right, November 9th and the, on the Georgetown Facebook page. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me, Terry. All right, that's a Jennifer from Parks and Wildlife. Great activities. You know, we do two park segments at least every week on this show and Sometimes it involves fishing and hunting and regulations, or we feature a park or a place that the activity is going on. But parks does so many activities that you just need. This is an outdoor state, folks. Get out. Have some fun. Take advantage of it. We'll be back with more outdoors on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You know, I got a great prize to give away, and you play the Eagles. Take it easy. Well, let's 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 do a little trivia, and we will take it easy. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, and I'm not even going to tell you how you got to contact us in the next couple minutes till after I tell you about the trivia prize. If you were listening during the first hour, you heard Austin Parr from Discount Tackle say he put together about a $50 value package of jigging spoons, uh, jigging wrap, Johnny darters, and blade baits because... If you listen to the show, you're going to hear us talk a lot about this fall bite and using those type of presentations. It is one of our favorite and most productive ways to fish. So if you follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, you would have seen a post that Karen put up about 20-plus years of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors trivia. When I started when I started this, uh, this gig in 1998... We weren't 104.3 The Fan. We were The Fan, but we weren't 104.3 The Fan. We were something else. We were a different uh, frequency. The first one that texts to 303-713-1043 what we were in 1998 when we started this show, what we were called, we weren't 104.3, we were something else. We were The Fan. We're going we're gonna to give them that uh, $50 package of lures. So first one to text to uh, 303-713-1043 with the information about what we were back then. Anyway, in talking about this, um, this bite that goes on this time of the year, we're going to talk about it more. Nate Zielinski's coming up. I'm sure he's going to talk about it. You heard Ronnie Castiglione talks about it. Chad was on a week or two ago talking about it. Brad talks about it all the time, Brad uh, Peterson. And it's one of my favorite ways to fish. I wrote, actually, the chapters on spoon jigging for um, In Fisherman's Critical Concept books on walleye fishing uh, back in the 90s. And then I did several articles for Walleye Insider on it also. And the, the whole concept was, as we get these temperature drops in the fall, unlike the spring where they turn fishing up, they stress the bait fish. They tell the predator fish that it's time to fatten up for winter. The bait fish gather up, and as they gather, the, the predator fish gather with them, 
And this isn't just walleyes. Catfish can be amazing on these lures. Uh, crappies, smallmouth bass, white bass, wipers, just about any predator that takes advantage of that bait you could catch on these methods. And they're so reliable. We took, we did a, uh, we did a test when I was working on the articles for In Fishermen with Tom Bruno and myself. There was three of us in the boat down at Pueblo. And we were found a great big ball of shad that had uh, walleyes underneath it. We could see them on the electronics. By the way, next week, Dan Swanson will join us to talk about how to use your electronics to fish like this. And we had some shiners in the boat with us who were about the same size as the shad. We were catching fish on jigging spoons. Um, so we lowered. We had one of the fishermen lower down a uh, shad, kind of pinned with a hook and a sinker, right among those walleyes. This was a shiner that was very similar in size and look to the shad we were fishing. Yet none of those fish even gave a look to that shad. They were so focused on those stressed bait, bait fish that were fluttering down and either dying or weakened that it was such an easy meal that we continued to catch them continuously on the spoons and never got one on that uh, that shiner. That's how effective this is. So it's truly, and by the way, if you want to know more about spooning, you could go to my uh, YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, and there's probably uh, four to a half a dozen shows about doing that this type of fishing, one on McConaughey, one on Pueblo, one through the ice up at Glendo. There's just a number of right in this area. So we're going to... Um, Take a real quick time out, and then Nate Zielinski is going to join us, and we're going to talk more outdoors on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.